Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. About eight years ago, according to court records, in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, a man named Gary Matthews brought forward a petition to change his name. He appeared in the courtroom of Judge Ronald Felino. Judge Felino was to hear the petition and ultimately to reject it. Matthew said, I'd like to change my name and I'd like to go by the name that I'm commonly known by in the neighborhood where I live, the people who know me. They've called me this for 20 years. Why can't I just change my name to match reality? He wanted to change his name from Gary Matthews to Boomer the Dog. <laughs> Boomer the Dog. It was a serious petition. The judge heard the petition and then said to him, I deny the petition on several grounds, but one of the reasons I'm denying your petition is that it could be dangerous to do so. Obviously, people wondered exactly what the judge meant by dangerous. Well, the judge answered the question. He said, imagine you calling 911 after an accident. Somebody is injured. Somebody is in critical need of intervention on the part of emergency services technicians. You reach the dispatcher. You report the accident. And then the dispatcher says to you, what is your name? Boomer the dog. <laughs> the judge said they'll never send emergency personnel. They'll never take that seriously. So on that basis, I reject the petition, and that was the end of the case. I read that this last week, and I thought, that's utterly absurd. Crazy that somebody under their own choice would seek such a change. Because the truth is, we're given our names. We don't have a choice in them. And sometimes we wish other names had been chosen. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I dare to venture a guess that if I said, how many of you wish your mother, your father together had given you a different name, there would be a lot of hands that would go up. So if you're a parent, soon-to-be parent, pregnant, about to name a child, take that into account, especially after the website that I found this week, website entitled 25 Names That Will Get Your Child teased. In other words, these are the names not to name them. I'm going to read just a few of them. Now, I want to apologize in advance if your name is on this list. <laughs> Let's just get that out of the way right here. <laughs> I'm not going to read them all. Some of them suggest some things that I'd rather not get into in church, but I will read a few of them. So here we go. First one, Aloysius. Aloysius. There's got to be an Aloysius here, but don't raise your hand. Second one, Egbert. He is so precious. Let's name him Egbert. <laughs> Stay away from that. Third one, Griswolda. Griswolda. Fourth, Bertha. Fifth, Millhouse. 
Sixth, Adolf. Yeah, don't name your son Adolf. That's not a good choice. Nor name number seven, Osama. That's probably not a good name at this point in time either. And the list goes on. All names that the writer of the list says, don't name your child this. Because your child will have to live with this name. Because in a very real way, we become our name and our name becomes us. Have you noticed that? All you have to do is say a name and immediately an image comes to mind. A picture of somebody. An emotional reaction to the person. Right away, we have some responses when the name is said. Let's just try that. I'm going to say just a few names and think for a minute of exactly what happens inside of you, your mind, your heart. How do you respond? Ready? Here's the first name. Abraham Lincoln. Immediately, images, thoughts come to mind, right? Martin Luther King, Jr. The sound, the cadences of his preaching. What about Bill Gates? Hear the pennies dropping? (laughs) Or maybe Nelson Mandela? Or what about Magic Johnson, for those of you who are sports fans? What images, what memories, what associations come to mind? Or what about this one? Ellen White. Probably a mixture of emotions on that, depending on how you were raised. Because our names become us, and we become our names. All you have to do is state the name, and immediately there's a response. So let me give you two more, just two other names. Moses. Moses. As I stood here a few moments ago in the interview looking up at Ezra, I thought about Moses. Picture him with white hair, long flowing beard, standing on the crest of Sinai. One last name, God. God. What comes to your mind when you hear that name? It's an important question to ask because today we come to the third of the ten words. The third of the ten commandments or promises. And this one has to do with reverence, reverence for the name of God. I'd like to read you the words of a scholar named David L. Baker as he ponders what reverence for God might mean. He says, A helpful definition of reverence is the feeling or attitude of deep respect tinged with awe. I suspect this is at the heart of the third commandment. It is not simply a matter of avoiding specific words or expressions, but how we think, speak, and act in relation to the Almighty. When we talk about God, do we show deep respect tinged with awe? What comes to mind when you hear the word God? Do you think of a being high and holy, mighty and majestic, ineffable and inscrutable? Do you think of a being merciful and gracious, tender and compassionate, who walks with you every step of your life? Do you think of both? 
What comes to mind when you think of God? Whatever it is that comes to mind will go a long way to determining when you look at the ten words, uh, how you understand them. In fact, maybe it's possible to understand them in two ways. Maybe we can understand them as statements which God gives to His people regarding how we ought to live, but also as promises which God entrusts to His people, telling us how we indeed will live if we walk with Him. God. His name. So let me read to you the commandment. It's a short commandment. It's contained in just one verse found in Exodus 20, chapter 20, and verse 7. Here's how it's rendered by the today's New International Version, which is the version in your pew Bible. The TNIV says this. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. There are probably three ways in which this commandment has historically been understood. The first way is that it has historically been understood to be saying this, don't use God's name as a curse word. Don't curse the name of God and don't curse using the name of God. Part of that, for those of us who speak English, probably traces its genesis back to the King James Version. If you happen to have been raised on the King James Version, you will remember how the King James renders this commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. In vain. That is even entered into our parlance into the vernacular of our day as a way of speaking ill of God by using His name to curse. I experienced that a great deal in my college years when I was working on a construction crew, later on a roofing crew. It was a daily kind of experience. It's a very relevant application to the commandment in our day and time. But scholars question whether or not it would have applied at that time. The understanding of God, after all, was of God as a high and holy being. The name was given great reverence. In fact, in the years, the decades, the centuries following this, they didn't even pronounce, utter the name of God because it was that sacred. Scholars have sometimes wondered exactly how to pronounce the name of God because it was not pronounced. High. Holy, sacred. So while we may say, absolutely, that's a good application, never use God's name in cursing, they in that day and time likely would have said, we don't do that anyway because we don't speak the name of God. Our day, it's a good application. I read this week, I read of a child raised outside the purview of any church or understanding or learning the stories of Scripture, read of a child who heard the Bethlehem story for the first time, the story of Jesus being born in a manger, and looked up and innocently asked his mother, Mommy, why did they name the baby after a bad word? I think it kind of underlines where our culture is. 
So that's one of the ways this commandment has been understood. Certainly applicable in our day and time and legitimate. Maybe not as applicable in that expression in that day and time. But it's been understood in a second way as well. Not just a prohibition for using God's name in cursing, but a prohibition for carelessly using God's name and swearing an oath, swearing to tell the truth. In fact, due to this commandment, there are certain Christian confessions, the members of which will not raise their hands, put their hand on a Bible, and take an oath in the courthouse to tell the truth, so help me God, because they understand this to be saying, you can't do that. The largest number of Christians have not understood it that way, but rather don't carelessly use the name of God as swearing that I'm telling the truth. Let me read you the words of John Dibdahl. John Dibdahl, known to many in this community, underlines this when he writes about the third commandment with these words. Israel's specific problem was probably swearing by God. This involved the use of oaths to support the promises or pledges of people. In business and personal dealings, people would swear by some religious name, person, or symbol to convince the people of the truth of their words. The name of God would thus be open to abuse because of the people who used it for personal gain or even deceived others by its use. Thus the commandment prohibited using God's name for personal advantage or gain at the expense of His real character. People who claim to be believers and proceed to conduct shady business practices or to deceive certainly need to hear this commandment. You've heard it used in this way. We've likely all used it in this way. You know how the conversation goes. You're telling a group of friends what happened, and it's a funny incident, and it gets a little more and more extreme, and pretty soon they're saying, that didn't happen, that did not, I don't believe you. And you say, I swear to God, that's what happened. That, according to another application of this commandment, is out of bounds. A careless use of God's name. I wondered this week if it might work this way. Gavin DeBecker is an author who also heads up an organization whose purpose is to help prevent violence to public figures, media figures, political figures, and the like. As part of their work, this organization tries to understand when they can say this person is a danger and that person is not. So one of the things they, they try to do is try to ascertain when someone is telling the truth and when they are lying. De Becker gives a list of ways in which they seek to define truth from a lie and how it's told. Here is one of the ways De Becker says to watch for if you're trying to decide if a person is truthful or not. Not the only way, can't be taken alone, but an important piece of the puzzle. DeBecker says they give too many details. Too many details. They give too many details, not because the story doesn't sound believable to you, but because the story doesn't sound believable to them. 
And so they keep adding details to make it sound increasingly believable. And it's in the adding and the adding and the adding of words that De Becker says, we begin to question, are you telling the truth? I wonder if that's similar here. We start adding words, adding thoughts, adding names, just so people will believe us. And then we throw in the name of God, the highest and the holiest name. Maybe this will convince you. Jesus had something to say about this. The Sermon on the Mount when he was talking about the issue of oaths and truth-telling, he said very simply, let your yes be yes and your no, no. You don't need to add anything more. If you're a person of your word, if people know you mean what you say and you say what you mean and it's dependably true, you don't need anything else. This is what happened. So that's the second way the commandment has been understood. Not just a prohibition against cursing using God's name, but against careless swearing that it's God's truth. But those, no matter how important, how valid they are, I think fall short of the far-reaching claims of this command. Because there is one more way this commandment has been understood. And it truly is deeply demanding. And that is this. Don't take the name of the Lord your God as being the Lord your God unless you are willing to bring your life into harmony with His character. Don't claim the name of God. I belong to God. God is mine. This is God's will. Don't do that unless you are willing to align your life and God's character. In other words, practice what you preach. Or a negative way of saying it is don't be a hypocrite. James Landis in his fine little book, God's Finger Wrote Freedom, writes about that with these words. Some measure of Yahweh's hostility toward hypocrisy may be seen in the warning associated with this commandment. Church leaders are among the most vulnerable to the charge of hypocrisy. Intensely conscious of their awesome responsibilities in God's work on earth, Rabbis, ministers, and priests often intone about the leading of God in some project or policy they have adopted, using God's name to blanket with sanctity an unreflective, poorly conceived human enterprise. It's God's will. They sense that they can get support from believers more easily if they use pious language, lifting up God's name to influence people rather than obeying Him. Much of it is unconscious at first. They slide from listening to the will of God to using His name to support their own will. We are so accustomed to evoking God's name for everything 
we do, it no longer has any meaning except to baptize everything we do in religiosity. I have to be honest. I was deeply sobered by that this week. It kept running around in my mind this week. It made me realize I have seen and God have mercy have participated, I realized, at times in that. I realized there are times when I have heard God's name used in vain, God's name misused, and it was nowhere near a construction site, a football field, or a back alley. But it was in the confines of the church where leaders come together to form what can be at times good plans. But somehow... When there's resistance or uncertainty about the plans, it is so easy to baptize that in the name of God. It seems so natural to move from saying we've prayed and we believe as far as we can tell God is leading and God confirms this in community to move from that to saying it's God's will. You dare not resist it. I thought of Charles Colson, a name familiar to some. Years ago, Charles Colson was the right-hand man to President Richard Nixon when Nixon was president. His office was just down the hallway from the president's. He became known as Nixon's hatchet man. When something needed to be done, Colson would get it done. A former Marine with a stiff backbone, he could brave any challenge and take care of the matter. Later, after Colson had served prison time for his role in Watergate, after Colson had confessed faith in Christ and had become a Christ follower and had his life changed, turned upside down, Colson would say this. He said, I entered government service with high motives, with good expectations. I wanted to make a difference in the country. I wanted to serve the common good. I wanted to do something that would last, that would put our country on a good path, that would do good things, that would serve and help others. I had good motivation. But as time passed, as there was resistance to our initiatives, as it became clear that this wouldn't be easy, he said, I experienced this, this move that I only fully recognize later. This move from serving others to believing that the future good of the country depended on this president staying in office. We had to do anything possible to keep him in office. It all depended on him. So should it be any wonder, he said, that I came to the point of being willing to use any means to accomplish that end. I thought of Colson. And I wonder, does that have application in our communal life as the people of God? It ought to pull people like me up short 
we must be very careful at proclaiming this is of God just because it agrees with us. Sobering. That application of the commandment that says God will not be contained in a box. He does not always line up with my plans. And I know I've gotten into deep trouble when he hates all the same people I do. <laughs> then there's problems. But insult is added to injury when it all gets baptized in God talk. That's the application of this commandment that I find most demanding. Don't misuse my name. Because if you're going to claim my name, then have your life line up with my character. So we then have to ask, what exactly is then the character of God? Who is this God that we serve? I found a piece written by John W. Fountain that I read this week that I thought that, that really answers a question, that question in a way I could not. John Fountain, a former journalist for the New York Times, former professor at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, in a piece he wrote for the NPR series called This I Believe, wrote these words. I believe in God. Not that cosmic, intangible spirit in the sky that Mama told me as a little boy always was and always will be. But the God who embraced me when Daddy disappeared from our lives, from my life at age four. The night police led him down the stairs away from our front door in handcuffs. The God who warmed me when we could see our breath inside our freezing apartment. When the gas was disconnected in the dead of another wind-whipped Chicago winter. And there was no food, little hope, and no hot water. The God who held my hand when I witnessed boys in my hood swallowed by the elements, by death, and by hopelessness. The God who claimed me when I felt like no man's son. Amid the absence of any man to wrap his arms around me and tell me everything's going to be okay, to speak proudly of me, to call me son. I believe in God. God the Father, embodied in His Son, Jesus Christ. The God who allowed me to feel His presence, whether by the warmth that filled my belly like hot chocolate on a cold afternoon, or that voice whenever I found myself in the tempest of life storms telling me, even though I was told I was nothing, telling me that I was something, that I belonged to Him. And even amid the desertion of the man who gave me his name and DNA and little else, that I might find in Him sustenance. I believe in God, the God who I have come to know as Father, as Abba, Daddy. It wasn't until many years later, standing over my father's grave for a conversation long overdue, that my tears overflowed. I told him about the man I had become. 
I told him about how much I wished he had been in my life. And I realized fully that in his absence I had found another. Or that he, God the Father, God my Father, had found me. That's the character of our God. Our God who is high and holy and yet who moved into our neighborhood and took on flesh. Our God who is majestic and magnificent and yet who holds our hand in the darkest night. Our God whose footsteps, if we follow them, lead us to the bedside of the sick person, to the cell of the prisoner, to the home of the grieving person. That's our God. Our God who cares about those for whom no one cares. Our God who holds up those who have been beaten down. Our God who touches the lives of the downtrodden and draws in the marginalized. That is our God. Our God who calls us to the heights of nobility and integrity and yet will descend into the depths, into the pit of despair and decadence to find us. That's our God. The God who says, don't claim my name unless you wish to align with my character. That's our God. The God who looked at his people at Sinai. The God who looks at his people in Loma Linda. And says, don't take my name. Unless you want to walk in my footsteps. Align with my character. And become my presence in the world. But if. But if. But if you want to do that, God says, I will take you. I will establish with you a covenant founded on my amazing and powerful love and goodness. I will make you my own. I will walk with you every step through this wilderness until we reach the promised land together. And on the journey, as I make you my own, you will align with my character. That, he says, I can tell you. You will not take my name in vain because I will make you my own. That I promise. God of grace, thank you for the name the name that is high and holy, the name that is humble and lowly. Thank you for the privilege we have of claiming the name. Lord, we place our lives in your hands, trusting that you would align us with you. In Jesus' name, amen.